In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. People often think of failure in one of two ways, as something that hinders the pursuit of success or as something that's a necessity in obtaining it, as in the Silicon Valley mantra that recommends failing fast and often. There's truth to both ideas, but neither offers a complete picture of failure. That's because there isn't just one kind of failure, but three. Here to unpack what those three types are is Amy Edmondson, a professor of leadership at the Harvard Business School and the author of The Right Kind of Wrong the science of failing well. Today on the show, Amy shares which type of failure is most productive, which types are less fruitful, and how to best use the former, prevent the latter, and learn from failure of every kind. We also talk about how to organize potential failures into a matrix that will help you best approach them. Along the way, we dig into examples both big and small of how individuals, organizations, and families can put failure to work for them. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awimp.is slash failwell. Amy Edmondson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you got a new book out called The Right Kind of Wrong. It's all about how we learn from our mistakes. So you spent your academic career researching failure. How did that happen? Not a lot of people end up researching failure. How did you end up in that field? Well, I suppose you could say it was a little bit by accident. And let me explain that to say I was interested in learning, and even more specifically, I was interested in the problem of organizational learning, that that organizations need to keep learning in a changing world. And it turns out that is easier said than done for a whole host of factors. And one of the factors, one of the major factors that just kept coming up again and again in my research was that was our allergy to failure. The reality is things will go wrong, especially in an uncertain and complex world. And if we don't have a healthy response to that, we don't learn. We don't learn and grow as individuals. We don't alter our systems in ways we need to so our organizations are more effective and so on. Well, it seems like in recent years, I'd say in the past 15, 10 years, there's been this mantra of fail early, fail often that's come out of Silicon Valley, where it seems like they're trying to rehabilitate failure, saying it's okay to fail. But you argue that this mantra, this idea misses the mark when it comes to the benefits of failure. How so? That's right. It's, it's not so much that it misses the mark is that it's very woefully incomplete, right? Or it's not specific enough or not, it's too broad brush. And it doesn't say under these conditions, this is not good advice. And just to illustrate with an obvious one, you wouldn't say to your surgeons and, and operating room personnel, fail often, you know, have a great time. Of course not, right? You would say, gosh, can you try to get it exactly right? And th- they would know that there, there was that job. So the, the problem with this with the fail fast mantra isn't that it's 
wrong is that it only applies to certain kinds of contexts. Right. You wouldn't want uh, like a nuclear reactor to fail early. No, no, not even close. Or even an automotive assembly line. You don't say fail fast. You say, hey, how about Six Sigma, right? Let's get it right. You know, we we know there might be things that go wrong, but if we can have our quality be be at the one error per million events level, we're really good. And, And there's no reason we can't get there. So what you do in this book is you walk readers through your research that you spent your career looking at on how we can get the benefits of failure and when it's okay to fail early or fail fast and when it's better to, okay, well, we might make mistakes, but let's try to reduce that. And you categorize failures into three failure archetypes. You have intelligent failures, basic failures, and complex failures. Let's talk about intelligent failures. What makes a failure intelligent? Intelligent failures are the right kind of wrong, in my view. So a failure is intelligent. It should be applauded and used as often as possible when, in pursuit of a goal, in new territory, with a hypothesis, as small as possible, you turn out to be wrong. So to say that more clearly, a failure is always an undesired outcome. We don't don't want to fail, we want to succeed. But If that undesired outcome happens in new territory, in pursuit of a goal, you know, where you've done your homework, you've thought it through, you have good reason to believe it might work, and you don't expend more resources or take a greater risk than you have to to get the knowledge you need to go forward, then it's an intelligent failure. And you, um, in the book, you highlight back in the mid-century, the 20th century, when doctors were trying to figure out how to do open-heart surgery. This was an example of intelligent failure. The risk was really high, but the payoff, they were in a new territory, but the payoff was significant, but they did all they could to reduce failure. To mitigate it. Yeah. Right. And one of the ways they mitigated risk, or one of the ways they kept the failures, which must have been, you know, devastating emotionally and intellectually to experience one of the ways they kept those failures as small as possible is that they, of course, only operated on people who truly had no other choice. You don't operate on a healthy patient and say, hey, this might not work. We've never done anything like this before. No, of course not. They were operating on patients who had very little chance of survival over any kind of long term. And so, in a sense, these patients' only hope was a surgical repair and yet such a thing hadn't been attempted before. So the odds were, you know, not truly high that it would work out well the first time. And I describe this, it's, it's such a visceral example of, yes, a series of very intelligent failures that ultimately led us to the stunning success that open heart surgery is today. Yeah, now it's just a matter of routine. Practically, yep. yeah. But you also argue that okay, these are the right kind of wrongs, but we we still, even though when we know like, okay, we're doing something that's new, there's going to be a big payoff, we still have that aversion. Yes. So what what's holding us back from making these intelligent failures? Well, I think that aversion is part of it. And, and so that leads us to be risk averse. And the, the, the word is captured right in there. I mean, you know, many people, in fact, most people are more, you know, are, are sufficiently risk averse that they will fail to make progress on desired goals or, you know, fail to experience all sorts of things that they would dearly love to do, but they can't because they, if, if, if you want everything to go perfectly, then 
you will not do anything that has the risk of failure. And if you choose not to do anything where there's a risk of failure, then you're not growing, stretching, venturing into new territory. And then the other aspect you talk about too is that there's that social fear. You know, no one wants to be a loser. No one wants to be a failure. So there's that element as well. Absolutely. I think most people can think of a thing they'd be willing to do behind closed doors. You know, I'll I'll take a risk. I'll try something and it might fail. But as long as no one else sees me doing it or knows about it, then I'm okay with it. We don't want the embarrassment or the humiliation of the failure. And then you uh, talk about this idea I think people might have heard about of if you want to avoid that social fear, that social stigma is groups need to develop what's called psychological safety. What is psychological safety? Well, psychological safety describes a climate, an interpersonal climate, where you really don't feel afraid to take risks, like speaking up with an uncertain idea or disagreeing with someone or admitting a mistake or acknowledging a failure. So all of those kinds of behaviors, those interpersonal behaviors are quite They can be uncomfortable because you worry that people might think less of you. You might be rejected. And so in an environment where you know, yeah, that's just what we do. It might not be easy, but I I believe my team members will welcome this. Or I believe my family expects me to be candid about this. So that describes psychological safety. It's quite literally an environment where you can take interpersonal risks of the kind that are so necessary for problem solving and innovation and ideation and all of those good things. Well, this goes back to a study you did early in your academic career where you thought it was a failure, but you actually found out this actually led you down some new research paths. I think early on you were researching teams, like what makes a good team? Does a good team culture reduce mistakes? And your study found, oh my gosh, this this team that looks awesome, like every, it seems like they're cooperative, everyone's yep. fantastic. They actually made more mistakes. And you thought, oh my gosh, my hypothesis was wrong. But I think what you found out was like, actually, no, what happened is this team, the teams that look like they have good camaraderie, they're talking, et cetera, they actually just talk about their mistakes more than the teams that don't have that connection. It's, it's exactly right. And of course, it took me you know, hours to even think that might be what was happening to realize that is a possible interpretation of the confusing data. Because the confusing data were suggesting, as you said, that the teams with higher camaraderie, higher quality relationships were ones that also had higher error rates. Now, if that just seems you know so wrong on multiple levels until you start to realize, well, wait a minute, the error rates, how objective are they? You know, how do we get those data? And you begin to realize that really the only way you're getting data on people's errors is if they're telling you about them or if they're not hiding them, if they're letting them be discovered, which is you know not easy for people to do. So I began to suspect that these better teams weren't making more mistakes. They were just more open about them. And later on, I called that difference in climate, psychological safety, found a way, developed a way to measure it, and ultimately found that that measure is very predictive of team performance in a huge variety of industry contexts. And we've had guests on the podcast uh, that deal with family psychology. One thing that you often see is that couples who don't argue, there's probably problems there if they're not having yes. arguments. The same sort of thing. If you don't feel comfortable raising concerns with your spouse, that's a problem. Right. 
Right. It can't be that you just have no disagreements or that you just see eye to eye on everything. There's never a conflict. There's never a trade off. You know, there's never uh, who's going to pick up the kids at daycare today kind of moments. Right. That just isn't um, that's probably not possible. So, you know, any relationship, any healthy relationship is going to have disagreements, conflicts, challenges, arguments. And so if you're not hearing any of that, if that isn't happening, it might at first glance seem like a good sign, but it probably isn't. It probably means people are either afraid to disrupt the apparent harmony or maybe one partner, not the other, feels afraid to, you know, to be themselves and just to speak up openly and honestly. Okay, so to recap, intelligent failure, it's when you're going for, it's new territory. What were the other factors? Well, it's new territory in pursuit of a goal with a hypothesis as small as possible. So there are four criteria. Okay. And what we're really talking about, of course, is an experiment. And yeah. you're acting, but at some level, you know that what I'm trying to do here to, re- to achieve a result that I care about may or may not work. And so it's an experiment, technically. And you try not to have experiments that are larger than they need to be when there's uncertainty, meaning you don't want to you know, invest more money than you can afford in an uncertain investment. You don't want to use more patients in a clinical trial than you need to, to be able to demonstrate efficacy of the treatment. That makes sense. So if you're thinking about starting a business, you don't, might not necessarily want to quit your day job and then right. you know, mortgage your house right. and yeah. you know, bet it all on this business. There's, there's other small steps you could take to, to get, eventually start your own business. Yes. So mitigate risk by doing it incrementally. You know, doing yeah. it, and that might sound too risk averse, but it isn't because each of those incremental steps involves some risk, but you're managing risk, which is smart. So another type of failure you talk about is a basic failure. So what's a basic failure and how does it differ from an intelligent failure? Basic failures are pretty simple. Um, they're undesired results that were caused by human error. And human error means there was a right way. You know, you could think of it as a recipe. There was a recipe that could and should have been used to get the result you want, but you made a mistake and it led to a failure. So basic failures are are simple. That doesn't mean they're small. They can be big. They can be small. But technically, or at least theoretically, they're preventable. You know, when we're really at our best, when we're alert, when we're vigilant, when we're exercising good teamwork, we can catch and correct most basic failures. Okay, so basic failure would be swapping out salt for sugar in a recipe. Exactly, exactly. You know, and the cookies will taste, or you know, or the or the sauce will taste bad because now it's got too much sugar in it and and not enough salt. Right, and yeah, but these basic errors they can be big. You talk about a Citibank employee who did something wrong with the computer and like transferred. I think it was millions. $800 million. So it was essentially, you could think of it as a checking the wrong box in an online form, which means you're not being vigilant enough, right? If, if by, if you have a system that can allow you to accidentally transfer essentially the principle of a loan rather than the interest, it's probably not a well-designed system, but nonetheless, it was a system that needed to be used with great care and human error led to this massive kind of economic loss. 
And you also talk about a basic failure, unlike an intelligent failure, a basic failure occurs in known territories. Like, you know right. the recipe, you know the protocol for transferring money. It's just right. you messed up somewhere along the way. Up. Yeah. Right. And to say that it's in known territory and it's not as kind of valuable as an intelligent failure doesn't mean you can't learn from it. We can definitely learn from our basic failures, right? I try very hard to learn from my own basic failures, but the sort of amount of learning is arguably less, much less than for new failures, intelligent failures, where there just wasn't a recipe. So you had no choice but to kind of create a recipe. Yeah, I think the things you can learn from a basic failure is you learn about human nature. Like when is our tendency to be you know, not paying attention. When do we have a tendency to neglect things? And so you can develop systems or protocols to counter that. Yes. Yes. Self-awareness and systems or protocols. So, you know, an example of a basic failure would be if you text and drive and then got into an accident, that would be a basic failure. And, And obviously the thing you learn is pretty darn clear here. Do not do that, which I think most of our listeners know that already, but we know it still happens as well. One of the things that people have done over the years to counter these basic failures, a simple checklist can get mm-hmm. get you through a lot of things. This started off with pilots during World War II. They have a checklist they go through. Mm-hmm. And then now in the medical field, they also have very basic rudimentary checklists. You think, why would I need to go through? Did I wash my hands? Did I? Right. But it works. Busy people, but you know, busy people have a lot on their mind. And sometimes just to have that concrete checklist in front of you will remind you, you know, put you back into the mindset you need to be to be careful. And of course, Atul Gawande, the the fabulous uh, surgeon and, and author, wrote this marvelous book, The Checklist Manifesto, about the power of something so simple as a checklist. And it's really all about the prevention of basic failure. And it's also the case that just having a checklist won't itself be enough, right? They have to be used with intent. Well, yeah, you, you highlighted a case of a pilot. Mm. There was a checklist. They were supposed to defrost or not, something like that. Yeah, but they it's, didn't, it's yeah. Air Florida, it's a famous and tragic accident. It's Air Florida Flight 90 back in January of 1982. And the pilot and the co-pilot went through the checklist essentially in their sleep. You know, it's Air Florida, so you can imagine that most of the time when you're Air Florida, you're in warm weather. Most of the time when you're saying anti-ice off, the correct answer is off. And that's exactly what they did. The pilot said anti-ice off and the co-pilot said off, you know, as if that was the right answer. On a cold January blistery icy day, in Washington, D.C., that was, in fact, decidedly the wrong answer. Not going through the anti-ice routine led to the downing of that flight and the death of 78 people. Okay, so it's a great application for this in everyone's just day-to-day life. Uh, look at the things you do on a regular basis where you've noticed simple mistakes happening because of you're not paying attention and develop a checklist for that. And, and follow it. And this could be like, you know, when you're packing for a trip, right? Instead of thinking, oh, I forgot, yeah. whatever, have a, have a checklist you use every single road trip. Absolutely. You know, I finally did that myself because there were just were too many times where I'd get somewhere I realized I forgot socks, you know? And then what are you thinking? You weren't thinking, right? So <laughs> yeah. you, need a little, you need a little help. And that's why you have the checklist. Okay, so that's basic failure. The next type of failure is a complex failure. What makes a complex failure complex? 
A complex failure is complex because it's multi-causal. So the characteristic complex failure has multiple factors that contributed to the failure. It's the interaction between the factors that led to the mess because any one of these factors on their own would not cause a failure. So they're not like the basic failures where you just need this one mistake and boom, there's a failure. There could be mistakes involved, but you don't need mistakes involved. You just need an unfortunate coming together of several factors that lead to a kind of breakdown. What's an example of that 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 we've seen in recent years? Well, recent years, I mean, in one of my research studies in the hospital context, there was a young patient, a 12-year-old boy named Matthew, actually not his real name, but nonetheless, he was mistakenly given mistakenly meaning by the system, I guess, a a potentially fatal dose of morphine. Fortunately, it was caught and and counteracted. But in my analysis, I identified like seven different factors, any one of which on their own wouldn't have led to this sort of accidental overdose. The first thing was that the hospital's ICU were post-surgical patients, which Matthew was ordinarily go was full. So then he had to go to be cared for by people who don't usually care for post-operative patients. So they were kind of less less specialized. He happened to be um, cared for by a brand new nurse who maybe had done, didn't have as good instincts about the processes of care. There was a pump that is used for this pain medication that was in a sort of dark corner, making it harder to read. You know, there was um, sort of a a printing error in the, or not error, a a printout of the concentration that was folded in a way that made it hard to read. So I don't need to go into all the details, but the point is that any one of those factors on their own wouldn't lead you to give this overdose, right? It was the fact of them all coming together at the same time that created the perfect storm. No, this reminded me, when I got to this section, reminded me of Clausewitz, the famous military strategist who wrote On (laughs) War. And he had this idea of friction. And he talked about this. He says, everything in war is very, he's talking about war here, but I think you can apply this to anything. He says, everything in war is very simple, but the simplest thing is difficult. The difficulties accumulate and end by producing a kind of friction that is inconceivable unless one has experienced war. So yeah, friction isn't just one thing, it's a bunch of stuff coming together. And then he goes on and he says, countless minor incidents, the kind you can never really foresee, combine to lower the general level of performance so that one always falls far short of the intended goal. Yeah, so in war, you know, as in life, it's not just one thing, it's like a bunch of different stuff that, that comes up. It's many little things, and I open the chapter on complex failures with a a classic and tragic environmental spill back in 1972 called the Torrey Canyon, which is the name of the ship. And the captain himself describes this as, quote, many little things, unquote. And that's that's exactly the same sentiment. And any one of those little things on their own wouldn't have led to this horrible spill. But the unfortunate coming together of these factors leads to an outcome that nobody wants. Right. This can happen. You probably see this in your daily life when you're late for work. Yeah. It's like your kid gets sick and then the other kids lost their homework and then the car and then needs gas. Traffic and the, right. it's raining and Right. And it, it's not one of those things. If one of the things happened, you would have been okay. But all of them together combined, it just created that created the problem. Right. And the thing about complex failures, because they sound kind of like, oh well, there's nothing we can do about it. 
is that in fact, they offer many little opportunities for course correction, right? Because there's so many different factors. In many cases, all you needed to do was kind of notice and alter one of them to prevent the failure. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family? When I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. 
Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Well, one thing you talk about in the book and in your research is that complex failures are increasing in our modern age. Why is that? Well, I think we have so much more complexity in our world. I mean, you know, information technology maybe is first among equals for this reality, which is we're, we're interconnected in ways that we never have been historically. So, you know, the phrase going viral, you know, you can, a, a, a photo or a tweet or something that you really didn't want to get attention may inadvertently get attention simply because we're so interconnected. It's just so quick. Things can spiral out of control very quickly. I also think we seem to have more complex and unpredictable weather patterns more complex and interconnected supply chains that are global so that we're more likely to be impacted by random events in another part of the world in our day-to-day life than, than was ever possible in history. Yeah, we experienced, I think everyone experienced to some extent, the supply chain things during covid Right. And it's just a perfect example. Everything's so interconnected. You make one small change here, then the distributor has to make a change and the retailer has to make a change and then the consumer has to make a change and then everything right. just gets and mucked up. Few people can't show up for work because they're sick, right? And then that leads to shortages here and, and you know something doesn't get delivered and then that spirals out of control. But you say that, okay, complex failures, we're not completely at the mercy of complex failures. You say there's often warning signs that there's a problem. How do you know yeah. when there's a warning sign in a, with a complex failure? Well, you, you really won't know unless people, let's go back to psychological safety again, because so many times and many of the complex failures that I've studied in company and government settings, it is not the case that the bad news or the failure came in totally out of the blue. It is nearly always the case that there was one or more people who, you know, had a worry, thought something wasn't quite right, but really didn't feel safe to speak up about it in a timely way that might have allowed for corrective action. So psychological safety plays a really important role in our ability to prevent complex failures. And if it sounds like a fool's errand, it really isn't because there's a whole body of research called high reliability organizations that that addresses the question of, you know, why do some inherently risky and um, dangerous undertakings like air traffic control or, you know, nuclear power plants operate safely just essentially nearly all the time, right? And it's through vigilance and mindfulness and incredible teamwork and and you know psychological safety to speak up and listening to people and thanking them when they raise a concern even if that concern turned out to be nothing so there's a set of management and cultural practices 
that allow us to cope with our complexity and our interconnectedness. And there, also you talk about there's things you can do to, you can have contingency plans in place to right. kind of mitigate complex failures. Like I've experienced this with my podcast. Over the <laughs> years, I've learned that technology is fickle. Sometimes things are working great. And I, I never know if someone's on a PC or a Mac or mm-hmm. whatever. And so I've been able to develop systems where I've got my main recording, then I got a backup of recording, then I got a backup of the backup. and. Brilliant. It saved me, but it's helped me reduce some of the risk with complex failures. Exactly. And you've only done that because you've, you know, you may have learned I had from exp- a failure, yeah, right? No, yeah. Uh, but you recognize that, yeah, as much as we know, as this is not new territory, right? In this point in history, recording a podcast is not new territory. And yet you understand that a, several factors could come together in just the wrong way. My computer might be different than, you know, the last guest's computer. Exactly, as you said. So you figure out in advance that because things might go wrong, I'm going to think about the backups. And also this idea of complex failures, you talk about the idea that some complex failures are tightly coupled and some are loosely coupled. What do you mean by that? Well, this is work by a famous sociologist named Charles Perrault, who uh, passed away a few years ago. And he just pointed out that when you have highly interconnected complex systems, With tight coupling, you're really at greater risk for complex failures. And tight coupling refers to the following idea, that if there's an action in one part of the system, it leads inexorably to a result in another part. Uh, So just to have a simple example, you know, you, you put your ATM card into the slot, it just pulls it right in, right? And and it's too late. Like you can't get it back until the, the system decides to give it back to you, right? So tightly coupled refers to things that once they're underway, you really can't stop them. Okay. So an example of that is the, the Citibank employee who transferred $800 million. Like they did that one thing and it was done. Right. Right. So that was a tightly coupled system that, by the way, you know, nowadays we have, uh, and this was only a few years ago, but you know, we have the duo, what are the, the, um, help me out. Double opt-in. Whenever, yeah. Whenever I do transfers with my bank account, it has to be like one person and then another person. And then they send you a code you know, to your phone, and then you have to enter that code. And those things are in there. Sometimes they feel very annoying, but they're in there to prevent the tight coupling that would just lead to so many more failures than would would be desirable for anybody. Yeah. One of the takeaways I got from the tight coupling and loose coupling. So loose coupling is the opposite of tight coupling. So you basically, you have some slack. So if you do have a failure, you're able to correct. And it made me think of, you know, just adding more margin in your life, Right. So instead of yeah. trying to like get to to the last minute before you leave, you know, give yourself 10 minutes because, you know, that might help you if there's traffic, it'll accommodate for that. Brett, I love that because it's build it in. Like we all know this. We all know we're moving too fast from meeting to meeting, you know, and then you're going to jump into your car and get to that next thing. Deliberately be, build in, you know, at the beginning of the week or the beginning of the month or however you do it. Build those buffers in. Slack and buffers are essentially the same concept. And very few of us have enough of them to actually operate effectively or as effectively as we would like to operate. So build in the buffer. All right. So let's recap what we've talked about here. We talked about three types of failures. We've got intelligent failures, and these are just experiments. Treat your life like an experiment. Mm-hmm. This, you can do this with your job. So maybe there's some type of a new position you want to go for. Well, try an experiment with it and see what you can do with it. Or, I mean, a date could be an intelligent yeah. failure. 
Um, Absolutely. Trying a new hobby could be an intelligent failure. Then there's a basic failure and that's just basic mistakes. And the way you yep. counter that is a simple checklist can often do checklist, the trick. Vigilance, attention. Right. And then we have complex failures. It's multifaceted. It could be any one thing, but they all come together to create the problem. So, you know, uh, paying attention to warning signs, not being afraid to op- speaking up or pointing out a potential issue, coming up with contingency plans and adding buffer. Can Love help. that. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah. So that's the first part of your book. You kind of lay this out and you go into more detail and I hope our listeners go and read the book. But I love in the second half of the book, you talk about some mindset shifts that people need to make when it comes to failure. And one thing you talk about um, is we need to overcome our tendency to find someone to blame for a failure. (laughs) So how does that help people learn from failures? Then how do you hold people accountable if you don't find someone to blame? (laughs) Great questions. So first of all, it's very natural to want to find someone to blame because it lets us off the hook, like psychologically and emotionally, right? If something goes wrong and I can instantly reassure myself that, hey, it's not my fault, right? Then I've bolstered my self-esteem. I've kept myself comfortable. I don't have to confront my own contribution to the failure. And so it's just a very natural instinct. I even describe in, in the book a a two-year-old who, when his father has a small sort of um, collision with the passenger side mirror uh, in driving too close to the parked cars, the little child immediately hears the bang and says, I I didn't do anything, Papa, right? It's like, of course not. You're he's sitting in the toddler seat in the back seat. But this instinct to, to um, dodge blame is very, very deep and well-learned. But it's unhelpful, right? It's unhelpful for our ability to sort of learn and grow. Because even if you're, I mean, I think there are very few times where you're 100% to blame for for things, but you always have some kind of contribution that you could look at thoughtfully and, you know, and wonder about and work on doing better next time and so forth. So it's, it's actually consistent with accountability because I think the way many people and many organizations think about accountability is counterproductive. They'll say, well, we need to hold someone accountable. And that's almost synonymous with punishment. We need to punish someone or else it'll happen again. Whereas the truth is, you know, when you really punish someone for something going, going wrong, what happens is it just decreases the chances that you hear about things in a timely way. But you know, back to back to psychological safety. But the way we need to think about accountability is to be willing to fully account for what happened, right? To take a clear-eyed scientific look at the events that unfolded, understand what role you played, what role other factors played, so that you can really learn its valuable lessons and improve your practices next time. Gotcha. And this isn't to say, uh, you talk about this in the book too, that if someone is being malicious, no. right, then like you need, right. yeah, you need to punish them. Yeah. Um, I'm, right. I'm yeah. all for blame when yeah. people engage in what I'll call blameworthy acts. Right. It's just that in our organizations and, and to a certain extent in our families, those aren't the norm, right? You know, the norm is just human beings who make mistakes and are sometimes a little thoughtless and sometimes a little busy and all the rest, but very few People are really waking up in the morning and sort of intent on sabotaging each other. 
Right. So yeah, if someone makes an intelligent failure, you don't want to do any blame there for sure. No, they're, they're no, trying you to they're celebrate trying, it. Yeah, you want to celebrate it. A basic failure, you know, if they were they didn't sleep enough or they're out partying, yeah. then you might want to have that conversation. But it could be something's just going on at work where it made it tough for them to pay attention. Right. So I mean, look at that. Yeah. They may have been having, you know, to do cover for other people who were out sick, or they may have, um, you know, had a a sick child last night, not got enough sleep. What you want to do is first understand what happened and then figure out what kinds of uh, protective measures to put in place to ensure that that same thing doesn't happen a second time. Another thing you talk about is reframing failures. What does reframing failure look like? Reframing means acknowledging that there's always a frame, you know, like a picture frame. We're looking at reality. We're looking at the events in our lives through frames that are largely unconscious, that stem from our background, our expertise, or, you know, our various biases that we all have. And reframing is learning to kind of stop and challenge how you see a situation, wonder what you're missing ask yourself, is there another way to see this, right? So if you have that reflexive instinct to just blame, oh, I know what happened there, it's the self-discipline to say, well, I, I, I have a partial view on what happened there, and I'd love to understand it better before I draw any conclusions. So yeah, I like the idea of just thinking of failures like a scientist, right? Like, yeah. What can I learn from this? I think that's a good reframe to have. And you also talk about one of the things you talk about throughout the books is idea of context, like understanding the context of failure happens in, how can that help you learn to fail better? You know, that the, the issue of context brings us back to why the Silicon Valley talk is limited because it only works in certain contexts. And so the way I describe a context with the two dimensions I use to figure out context is one is how much uncertainty is there, right? You know, how much uncertainty is there and whether or not I can produce a batch of chocolate chip cookies? Like very little, right? Unless all the power goes out or something. It's almost a guarantee that if I follow the recipe, I can produce those cookies. How much uncertainty is there that I can find a new drug that will cure a certain kind of cancer? Well, very high uncertainty indeed. And so that, that matters in terms of guiding my actions. Number two is what are the stakes? And, and, and for me, stakes are, can be financial, they can be reputational or they can be human safety. And when you're dealing with high stakes, you proceed far more cautiously, or you should, than when you're dealing with low stakes. And so if you're dealing with you know, high stakes and high uncertainty, you're conducting your experiments. You have to experiment because you don't have the answers, but those experiments should be very thoughtful and very small. Okay. I like that. And you have a nice chart to kind of walk people through that. Mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, if it's, if it's low stakes and it's something new, it's like, yeah, have fun experimenting. Have fun. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I literally have seen both errors in my research. I mean, meaning sort of these psychological errors we make where I've seen people be a little reckless in very dangerous situations and then bad things happen. Um, and then I've seen people be, you know, overly cautious because they want to get it right or they want to look good in situations where there really isn't a right answer. And the only way to make progress is to get out there and try stuff. Gotcha. So a high stakes context, that's where you really need that mindfulness. Like if you're an air traffic controller. Right. Super high stakes, but really well understood territory. So there's where you're operating as mindfully and then vigilantly as possible. Right. And then if you're in a situation where it's new, so like you're doing experimental surgery, 
and the stakes are high, you're going to want to do careful experimentation. Like, right. Yeah. And try right. to mitigate the risk as much as possible. Exactly. Okay. I love that. And you also recommend four failure practices. What are those and how can they help us fail better? So the four failure practices that I write about actually in the last chapter, how to thrive as a fallible human being are persistence, right? There will always be obstacles in your path in, in anything, you know, that you are truly hoping to do in your life or in your work, right? If you're, if you have stretch goals, there will be obstacles. And so persisting, you know, trying again, not being crippled by the inevitable failures that do happen is one of, one of the practices. Reflection, I think all of us can benefit from doing more explicit reflection that could be formalized in keeping a journal or could be weekly team reflections with your team at work to kind of what went well, what didn't go well. But being systematic about our learning from our own experiences is a super important practice. Well, I know that um, in special forces, they do what's called after action reports. Yes. So after a mission, they'll just get together and it's very, it's formal, but informal and there's no blame. They just talk about what went right and what went wrong. Yep. It's very clean, right? It's what, what did we set out to do? What actually happened? What's the difference and why? What will we do next time? Very scientific, not emotional, but it's almost storytelling right, to ourselves yeah. about to take our own experience and turn it into an explicit narrative so we can understand it better. Because, you know, we all make the mistake of thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, right. I had that experience. I'll learn from it. Right? But we won't unless we pause to do the explicit reflection. And the third one is accountability. And that's very related to reflection because that's being it's being willing to confront and, and be honest about the whole account, you know, again, what happened and that willingness to say, ah, here's what I did that may have contributed to that failure. Here's what I did that contributed. Here's what I failed to do that might have helped prevent it. Right? So it's about it's about being willing to own your role, which can seem scary, but it's also quite empowering if you think about it. You're facing the fact that you do matter, right, that you you have an impact and it's important to be willing to take, you know, sort of to own it, I guess, is what I mean. And then, and then finally, I talk about apologies as a real valuable practice that we can all learn to do more of in an uncertain, fallible world as uncertain, fallible people. Apologies play a very important role in relationships. If, if something goes wrong, it's just so powerful to be willing to apologize for it. And, and that means, of course, being willing to take account of where you contributed. But good, good apologies, first of all, they signal that you care about that relationship. You care about the other person. They express remorse. I don't mean, you know, they don't have to be like horrifyingly remorseful, but just, I feel bad that I didn't call when I said I would. Right? You express that remorse. You offer to make amends, you know, how can I make it up to you? And you own your part in it. You don't sort of duck the accountability part. And then beyond that, celebrate good failures, the right kind of wrong in your work with your kids. If they do something that ended up in a mistake, but is actually they learn something from it, be like, hey, that's that's great. You learn something. Yes. You know, I divide the, I sort of have the individual practices, you know, that each of us can do, you know, take accountability, you know, reflect and so on. And then the the kind of collective practices that work in a team or a family or a company, which 
include calling attention to the context, you know, being very thoughtful about like how much uncertainty or what the stakes are here, encouraging failure sharing, you know, that detoxifies failure. If we can sort of more cheerfully tell each other about the things that have gone wrong in our projects or or lives, it, it helps a great deal. And then really reward that honesty. You know, when, when, if you're in a family and a child sort of speaks up quickly about something, you know, I broke a glass if they're a little kid or I, you know, was at a party I shouldn't have been at if they're an older uh, teenager. Being deeply appreciative of that honesty will build the right habits and the right climate you know, for learning in that family. Well, Amy, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, the book can be found, Right Kind of Wrong, anywhere books are sold, I hope. And um, you can go to my website, amycedmondson.com, for um, information about other papers and other writings and activities. Fantastic. Well, Amy Edmondson, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure to talk with you, Brett. My guest today was Amy Edmondson. She's the author of the book, Right Kind of Wrong. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her work at her website, amycedmondson.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash failwell, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com, where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.